counting this sermon that I'm about to give, I have three more sermons currently planned for Micah, so we're almost near the end. Then we'll be in the book of Luke for a few sermons around Easter, and then we'll be starting a series in the book of Acts. Micah, though, is giving a word to Jerusalem in our passage. Jerusalem was to be, in this day of Micah, the paradigm of godliness for the world. Lo and behold, it's suffering a judgment from God, though, through Micah. These words will be back up on the screen after we read today, but I invite you to stand for hearing the Word of God if you're able to. We're going to be finishing Micah chapter 6. We'll be picking it up in verse 9. So Micah chapter 6, beginning in verse 9. The voice of Yahweh calls out to the city. And it is wise to fear your name. Pay attention to the rod and the one who ordained it. Are there still the treasuries of wickedness and the accursed short measure in the house of the wicked? Can I excuse wicked scales or bags of deceptive weights? For the wealthy of the city are full of violence and its residents speak lies. The tongues in their mouths are deceitful. As a result, I have begun to strike you severely, bringing desolation because of your sins. You will eat, but not be satisfied, for there will be hunger within you. you will, what you acquire you cannot save, and what you do save I will give to the sword. You will sow, but not reap. You will press olives, but not anoint yourself with oil. And you will tread grapes, but not drink the wine. The statutes of Omri and all the practices of Ahab's house have been observed. You have followed their policies. Therefore... I will make you a desolate place in the city's residence, an object of contempt. You will bear the scorn of my people. Let's pray. Father, we come before your word, a weighty thing. We do pray that you would use it here and now in a way that we know that it is your voice speaking to us. We each come with different conditions, problems, situations that are in our mind, and if we're honest, sometimes we come begging you to fix these things. Father, would you show us your truth here, and would we be content with what you tell us? Father, we pray that we would grow in grace, that we would learn in these moments to love and trust you more, to love and serve you more and to love and serve others well. Father, we love you and we thank you and we pray your voice to be speaking and not mine. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may receive it. I told you last Sunday during our prayer time that the night before I had taken a midnight trip to the hospital and that time I was a patient. Um, I had some heart flutters and palpitations, and in the considerations I was making and going to the hospital, I think I worked myself up more into really an anxiety attack of sorts. <laughs> so before long, I was there, and though they told me my heart was as healthy as it should be for a man my age, I did have a very fast heart rate, I don't know why, for the time I was there, actually I do know why, and some pretty high blood pressure. 
So I tried to begin some changes in my life by only drink one cup of, of caffeinated coffee a day, or as I heard some people put it, leaded coffee in the mornings. Sometimes I'll take a decaf in the afternoon. I tried to study as much as I can walking around the church and staying upright and mobile as opposed to sitting. I've tried to make it out for walks, especially now the weather's changing. And this simple little reaction to what... So what I heard is really, what I believe, illustrative of what Micah says here in our first verses. It says, The voice of Yahweh calls out to the city, and it is wise to fear your name. Pay attention to the rod and the one who ordained it. You could say I was paying attention to the rod. God is calling out to his people to Jerusalem. And he says, Pay attention to the rod and the one who ordained it. The rod is the rod of correction. Correction is coming in part because of their sin, which God will lay out both the sins that they committed and the penalty which for sins, which I think you will find is rather fitting. So in my story, suppose my rod is a trip to the hospital. For some people, that's enough right there. Never mind what's happening to you, I'll have to go to the hospital. <laughs> that's more painful and penalizing enough. But furthermore, suppose my rod is an elevated heart rate and high blood pressure. Those aren't good things. But it's not that they are inflicted by God, or it's not that I have them for no apparent reason. But if we go back further, we find that Kevin eats too much salt and sugar and drinks too much caffeine and does little to no exercise to compensate. So a rod it came into my life, and I should pay attention to it. On a much broader scale... A rod is coming to the very heart of God's people in Jerusalem. But the answer, or I should say the hope and the peace found in the rod, can be found in one little ending phrase here, that the city should not just pay attention to the rod, but also the one who ordained it. This is the voice of Yahweh, the one who is wise to fear, so says the verse. First, though, we talked about this last week, but sometimes we get tired of hearing that God is bringing a rod to his people. We know and believe that God is a God of love and peace and, and kindness and forgiveness, but we also know and profess in word, maybe just not in total absolute reception of it, but that he's also a God of justice. And here's what's been going on in Jerusalem. He says... Are there still the treasuries of wickedness and the accursed short measure in the house of the wicked? Can I excuse wicked scales or bags of deceptive weights? For the wealthy of the city are full of violence, and its residents speak lies. The tongues and their mouths are deceitful. Novel idea. God would like for his people to be honest. There are many places in the Bible where this is so, but one verse, in, two verses in Leviticus 19 says, You must not be unfair in measurements of length, weight, or volume. You are to have honest balances, honest weights, an honest dry measure, and an honest liquid measure. I am Yahweh your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Furthermore, God is a little bit more invasive into your privacy than you might think. Listen to what Proverbs 16.11 says. Honest balances and scales are the Lord's. All the weights in the bag are His concern. It could be that the house of the wicked 
in the verse, God might be talking about one wicked house in particular, the temple. People were coming to the temple and giving great offerings, or maybe in Jesus' day, buying and se- like, like in Jesus' day, buying and selling animals. Maybe there's a, a bit of an overcharge here, maybe a, a deceitful measure than what they say, all to the greedy, greedy's advantage, all to get more money, or whatever the case may be. I remember working for Pepsi, and one of my co-workers, somewhat a superior, once told me, hey, if you're working in the back room and you get a little thirsty, feel free, go ahead, open up a bottle of pop. You're working for Pepsi, they don't pay you enough. I guess that was supposed to be a compliment. <laughs> they didn't pay me enough. Wrapped up in enticement to sin. <laughs> go ahead, steal from the company, you deserve it. <laughs> there are many ways, especially in tax season, that you and I might get tempted to sin in ways we just don't think God's interested in. It's just money, render to God, render to Caesar, right? Paying wages, lending and borrowing, even among other friends. Oh, I need to get by, they have more money than I do. They wouldn't be too offended, which is why I'm concealing my deeds here. All the weights in the bag are his concern, so the proverb tells us. So as for Jerusalem, God asks, can I excuse wicked scales or bags of deceptive weights? The answer is no. That's how serious God takes it. Now we might calling it, we like calling it fudging here and there, taking what we think to be our fair share, maybe not legally, but it's our fair share, we say. It may not be how the government wants it, but we like that verse about obeying God rather than men, and maybe we've inserted or twisted a few verses in the Bible ourselves to tell us we're okay if we're deceptive with the big, mean, evil, scary government. And God says, can I excuse that? Can the almighty, perfect, good, just, and righteous God be an accomplice to our sins? Not if he intends to remain good, righteous, just, and pure. The love of money, Paul tells us, is the root of all evil. And it escalates with God's people here. It started with just a little bit more money desired, and it led to, for the wealthy of the city are full of violence, and its residents speak lies, the tongues in their mouths are deceitful. This is Jerusalem, the place where God's presence should reside and his people should flourish. It has become violent, lying, and deceiving. It wasn't enough fudging in their practices. Some had to escalate to killing. Some had to speak lies about how they got their extra money, and and, and others, in order to get their money, were just deceptive. Wickedness in God's city, that's supposed to be his people. They are supposed to be a holy, honest people. And this is the injustice that is taking place. Now, if you were on the receiving end of this injustice, being ripped off, overcharged, stolen from, and the like, and it's all illegal, but it all goes unpunished, you would suddenly find yourself taking hope in a just God, right? (laughs) And justice means God's people need to answer for these things. He says, as a result, I have begun to strike you severely, bringing desolation because of your sins. If you are a circler, a highlighter, you have your Bible open, do that too because of your sins. 
I want you to see here that God does not arbitrarily punish people. He does not take any pleasure in punishing people. The word punish has negative connotations. The kind of punishment that I think God is bringing here to his people is the kind revealed in Hebrews 12, which the author calls discipline. The author of Hebrews uses some verses that were read today from Proverbs 3, Christy read to us earlier, but he writes in Hebrews 12, he says, And you have forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons. My son, do not take the Lord's discipline lightly or faint when you are reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and punishes every son he receives. End your suffering as discipline. God is dealing with you as sons, for what son is there that a father does not discipline? <coughs> but if you are without discipline, which all receive, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we have had natural fathers discipline us, and we respected them. Shouldn't we submit even more to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, based on what seemed good to them. But he does it for our benefit, so that we can share his holiness. No discipline seems enjoyable at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it yields the fruit of peace and righteousness of those who have been trained by it. Therefore, strengthen your tired hands and weakened knees, and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be dislocated, but healed instead. Does God punish us for our sins? Call it semantics, but because of the connotation of punish, I might say he disciplines us. Similarly, Jesus is speaking to a church he calls lukewarm in Revelation chapter 3, and he tells them, as many as I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be committed and repent. But we need to be very careful here when we talk about this. God's discipline, so the author in Hebrews tells us, is redemptive and life-giving. See, again, no discipline seems enjoyable at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it yields the fruit of peace and righteousness to those who have been trained by it. This is very different from the punishment for unrepentant sin and disobedient lives. Jesus says in John 3:36. The one who believes in the Son has eternal life, but the one who refuses to believe in the Son will not see life. Instead, the wrath of God remains on him. Paul would, would really echo this sentiment in Ephesians 5.6. He says God's wrath is coming on the disobedient. But this is a reference to the non-believer, the disobedient, for the believer. Paul informs us in Romans 8 that no condemnation now exists for those in Christ Jesus. We can take hope in this. Because that means everything you and I face, any rod by God is a rod of discipline and training. A rod of sanctification. A rod that is not meant to punish us to the point of death out of some sick desire of Him to do so. Ezekiel tells us that God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. However, the rod that God brings us is to again yield the fruit of peace and righteousness to those who have been trained by it. This is why we not only need to pay attention to the rod, but the one who ordained it. I believe God is saying to his people, a rod is coming here and it's not meaningless. As I said a few sermons back, every sort of suffering has meaning in God's economy. The rod 
is not meaningless because of the one who brings it. And God is a good God. God is a redemptive God. God is a God whom you and I can bank on and his promises. And God uses all bad, including sins we commit and sins committed against us for his good. Don't just pay attention to the rod, but pay attention to the one who ordained it. Amen? And so we come back to verse 13, and God is saying, because of their sins, he has begun to strike them severely. And the punishment fits the crime. They have been greedy, violent, and lying. They have been ripping people off, getting what they want in any way possible. And so God says, you will eat but not be satisfied, for there will be hunger within you. What you acquire you cannot save, and what you do save I will give to the sword. You will sow but not reap. You will press olives but not anoint yourself with oil. You will shred grapes but not drink the wine. I was thinking about it, and some things never change. It's the same old thing. From the beginning to the end, the first sin in the garden was the promise or the temptation or the lie that, hey, Adam and Eve, you're missing out on something, and the only way you could get that something is to not trust God here, but to trust your own efforts and acquire it through disobedient and sinful means. God told you not to eat that, but there's something here. It's worth it. I'll get it. And it's still happening. Just look at celebrity magazines as long as you can stomach it. People work and labor and cheat and swindle and agonize and envy and fantasize and scratch and scrape and they're toiling and laboring for the world and are willing to lose their soul to get there. When what good is it to gain the whole world and in the process lose their soul? I think we've witnessed nations much closer to home to do the same things that we shouldn't be confused by God's people here in Jerusalem. A little historical background, they were first led by judges, to which they tell the last judge, Samuel, we want a king like the rest of the world. Everybody thinks we're funny looking, we don't have a king. All they know is that in some time past that God led us out of Egypt, that is, the Pharaoh just didn't let us out alive, period. I'm, of course, exaggerating and embellishing, but the idea was that Israel felt different, they felt particular. They're supposed to. God's called them to be that way. Samuel warns them, you get a king, you get everything with it. Wars, your sons and husbands will be fighting in them. Taxation, your daughters, brides, and sisters will be becoming perfumers and bakers in the kingdom. We don't care, we want a king. So be it. And they get Saul, he fails. They get David, he did good, but he still failed. They get Solomon, glory days, at the expense of a man with hundreds of wives and concubines. And if you ever read Ecclesiastes, it sounds like a suicide And then there's a split kingdom. And we'll talk about two of those kingdoms here in a minute. But the bottom line is that every king is just like us, and the people of Israel is just like us, and Adam and Eve are just like us. Yeah, we know what God said, we know how he wants it, we just don't like that. And I think I will be satisfied with the way that I want it. We won't. (laughs) That's the truth. Don't argue with the truth. We won't be satisfied if we have it our way. You will eat, but not be satisfied. There will be hunger within you. What you acquire you cannot save, and what you do save I will give to the sword. You will sow, but not reap. You will press olives, but not anoint yourself with oil. And you will tread grapes, but not drink the wine. So I was thinking about, obviously, all the verses, but... (laughs) 
for the sake of my next point, I was thinking about verse 14, and I did some research, and I couldn't find anything to agree with me. So I can't chalk this up to anything but other maybe than what I feel the Lord saying to me in these moments. And that is, sure, first of all, let's look at this. It says, you will not eat. You will eat but not be satisfied, for there will be hunger within you. And we could say, well, maybe this is talking about you as a people, and there's going to be some starvation, and there might not be enough food to feed everyone because of Jerusalem's sin, because of Judah's sin. <clears throat> Babylon's going to come. They're going to, they're going to be, there's going to be starvation among other punishments among them. But I wonder if Micah and if the Lord isn't speaking in some spiritual sense as well. I wonder if Micah is kind of aligning with this contemporary Isaiah who says in Isaiah 55, Come everybody who is thirsty, come to the waters, and you without money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why do you spend money on what is not food and your wages and what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good, and you will enjoy the choicest of foods. Pay attention and come to me. Listen so that you will live. I will make an everlasting covenant with you, the promises assured to David. So I wonder if God is saying through Micah to the people, you might have food, but you won't have God. You might have all the money in the world, but there will be a deep, profound, spiritual, inescapable, inexcusable hunger in you, because it took forsaking me to get what you thought would make you happy, to find that it really doesn't satisfy. Furthermore, what you acquire you cannot save, and what you do save I will give to the sword. You will sow, but not reap. You will press olives, but not anoint yourself with oil. You will tread grapes, but not drink the wine. God seems to be taking ownership here. He says he will, quote, give to the sword what unrighteous Judah has worked for. But he's also describing the simple logistics and consequences of what happens when they're conquered by Babylon. That everything they work for gets taken by and used by the conquerors. And so the point is, is that the elites thought that they were building something here. They thought that they'd accomplished it. They, they thought that all their hard work, which included cutting corners, ripping people off, some violence, getting their hands dirty in the wrong ways. They thought that they had achieved something here. But they ultimately have it. They ultimately have achieved nothing. But they tried because they think they've seen it work well in other people's lives. The beginning of verse 16 reveals that the southern kingdom has been watching some past leaders... And they have chosen to have some idol-worshipping idols. <laughs> so their idols worship idols. <laughs> In verse 16, the statutes of Omri and all the practices of Ahab's house have been observed. You have followed their policies. Therefore, I will make you a desolate place. Again, all their labors will come to nothing, and the city's residence an object of contempt. What's first interesting to me is that it would seem to me that there is a lousy relationship, to say the least, between the north and southern kingdoms of Israel. The north and south split after Solomon, the third king of the united Israel. This is hundreds of years that Micah is preaching after that split. Jerusalem is in Judah, the southern kingdom, and Ahab and Omri were the northern kingdom's kings, also called Israel or Samaria. So it could be 
that God is revealing to his people some conviction, kind of like if we were to hear, I see you've been paying attention to Hitler and mimicking him. And we would go, Hitler, that's, that's a bad guy. What does God mean here? Or it could be that the southern kingdom, Judah, Jerusalem, did look back into their northern kingdom's history and go, Ahab, Omri, those were great leaders. They had great kingdoms. Let's see what we can do. First Kings 16, verses 25-33, gives us some summaries of these kings. What's most interesting is the qualifier put at the beginning of each summary about the king, about Omri. The writer of 1 Kings says, Omri did what was evil in the Lord's sight, and then it says, he did more evil than all who were before him. But that's because Omri hadn't met his son Ahab yet, and what he was capable of, because the writer of 1 Kings clarified that Ahab taught Omri, but Ahab, son of Omri, did what was evil in the Lord's sight more than all who were before him. And then I just, I can hear the guy talking here. Then, as if following the sin of Jeroboam, son of Nabat, were a trivial matter. <laughs> he married Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians. If you read those words fast and confident, nobody knows the difference. And then proceeded to serve Baal and worshipped him. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he had built in Samaria. Ahab also made an Asherah pole. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel than all of the kings of Israel who were before him. Idols. Marriage to a gal who doesn't worship God, and furthermore, Ahab decides to adopt her God and replace his God. Ahab also does the kind of practices that God has been getting at his people through the whole book of Micah here. Injustice, ripping people off. 1 Kings 21 tells us Ahab wanted a vineyard right next to his palace. He didn't have enough land, poor guy. I just want a little more land. And he goes to the guy, I'll give you a vineyard somewhere else, eminent domain, buddy. Well, I, can, I can pay you the vineyard's value in silver if you want it. The guy who owned the vineyard is a man named Naboth, and I just can't get it any better than the way it's put in 1 Kings 21. So if you want to turn there, you can, or we'll be up here. Verse 3, but Naboth said to Ahab, I will never give my father's inheritance to you. That sounds like a guy who just doesn't want Ahab in his vineyard. Then Ahab is just a classic grown-up who's still a boy. Read, we read, so Ahab went to his palace resentful and angry because of what Naboth, the Jezreelite, had told him. He had said, I will not give you my father's inheritance. He lay down on his bed, turned his face away, and didn't eat any food. I can't wait for those days with Calvin. I'm just thinking it'll be in the next few years. Hopefully not when he's a grown man like Ahab. Then his wife Jezebel came to him and said to him, Why are you so upset that you refuse to eat? Because I spoke to Naboth the Jezreelite, he replied, and that's how I hear his voice, I'm sorry. I told him, Give me your vineyard for silver, or if you wish, I will give you a vineyard in its place. But he said, I won't give you my vineyard. Then his wife Jezebel said to him, Now exercise your royal power over Israel. Get up, eat some food, and be happy. For I will give you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. In other words, you're the king, and the king gets what he wants. Why are you complaining? We'll just cheat it out of him. He's just a pesky little citizen. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with a seal. She sent the letters to the elders and nobles who lived with Naboth in his city. In the letters she wrote, Proclaim a fast and seek Naboth at the head of the people. Then seat two wicked men opposite him, 
and have them testify against them, saying, You have cursed God and the king, and then take them out and stone to them. Just an amazing story. I guess you'll have to finish it on your own later. The point being, this is the sort of ripping off citizens, killing them in order to get their land, idolatry, and God is saying, it's going on here. In my city, in Jerusalem, in you, in my people. And that's the last part of the verse here in Micah 6. Again, therefore I will make you a desolate place, and the city's residence an object of contempt. You will bear the scorn of my people. Isn't that an interesting remark? God is talking to his people. And so I believe what he is saying is that every other nation, all of the people looking at them will be shaking their heads and saying, there it goes, Yahweh's people. Right? Let me put it to you this way. What if I was disciplining Calvin and then that was my final statement? Everybody's going to look at you with contempt because you're Kevin's son. Like, what does that even mean? That sounds like I'm, I'm getting thrown into the lot of contempt. That sounds like God knows when people laugh and scorn Israel, they'll be saying things like, liberated from Egypt back in the day, I'm sure. Babylon just wiped them out so much for Yahweh. What it really means, though, is that there is hope for them. Pay attention to the rod and the one who ordained it. This is because when God... God of his people, Father of his people, brings the rod. It comes with love and grace and redemption. It comes with purpose. It's not meaningless. It's not pointless. It's sanctified. Friends, God is, is fiercely in love with you. And in the middle of revealing judgment to the wayward, sinful, idol-worshipping King Ahab, mimicking, ripping off sinners, he says to them, you will bear the scorn of my people. He's saying, you're still my people, as in I'm not done with you. But if we pay attention to the rod and the one who ordained it, we see we're being disciplined for our good, not our defeat. The rod will come and God's people will go into captivity, into Babylon. And in Babylon, another prophet will speak. His name is Daniel. And he says, and I saw one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was escorted before him. He was given authority to rule and glory and a kingdom so that those of every people, nation and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. In the middle of captivity... In the middle of the rod, they hear that one is coming whose glory is greater than Israel, whose kingdom and dominion will last forever, and whose citizenry will include the entire world. And Jesus comes, and he bears the scorn of his people. Unlike his people, Jesus is sinless. Unlike his people, Jesus builds people up, he doesn't rip them off. He heals the vulnerable, he doesn't kill them. He helps the poor. He doesn't make more people poor. But at the end, he bears the scorn of his people. The angel showed up to Joseph in Matthew 1 and said, Jesus will save his people from their sins. And where people sought by their own means to be satisfied by doing what they ought not to do, Jesus is the bread of life that satisfies he is the living water for the soul, and he is where every labor, every toil, every yearning of the heart comes to feast and be full. 
In fact, he tells his people, I know where you can find what you're looking for. He says, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness are blessed, for they will be filled. Amen? Let's pray. Father, um, sometimes we hear you talk about kingdoms and nations and sins of many people. Help us not to miss the personal impact on what it means for us. I wonder if some of us are trying to build our own little kingdoms and we're thirsting and hungering and yearning and we think that the way we labor and toil will finally bring us what satisfies but then in the middle of that, perhaps we, we catch glimpse of a rod and we're tempted to just pay attention to the rod. But you're telling us today, pay attention to the one who ordained it. That you're not trying to rob us from joy, you're trying to show us where true joy is found. You're not trying to harm us, you're trying to build us up so we can see that all of our efforts and all of our striving and all of our yearning all of our desiring can be satisfied in you. And that even though it's the same sin that started this whole thing from Adam and Eve, that it's a sin that still trips us up. It's an old trick in the book because it's been proven effective. Help us to overcome. Help us to see that there is nothing else in the world that can satisfy and bring more pleasure than you do. But as Isaiah says, you can be bought for free. You can have, be had for free. So, Father, I pray that you would give us this truth in our life in a way that's lived out practically. Help us to reach others with this truth. Help us to see when people are passionate about something but keep on coming up empty and depressed and oppressed that we have what they need. And it's found in you and the salvation given through you. Father, we love you. We thank you. We thank you that you don't, um, that you've made us to have communion with you and you've saved us to have communion with you. And we ask and we pray all these things in Jesus' name, our Savior. Amen.